Jesus, as your sons and daughters, we absolutely adore you. And there was a time in each of our lives in which we didn't. There was a time in each of our lives where we didn't want to have anything to do with you. And yet you, by your grace, sent. Jesus, you, by your grace, came. You lived the perfect life and you died on the cross for our sins, taking our place. Rose again in power so that when we trust and believe in you, we can have eternal life. We can have eternal joy. We ultimately love you because you first loved us. And so, Father, God, I pray, I pray desperately that today that we will hear your word clearly and respond to it in the way that we should in faith and obedience. We need you. We can't do anything on our own. We can't change anybody. We can't even change ourselves. We need your spirit to do that. Prepare unity in the life of the church. And we pray that you would be glorified. As that song that we just sang, we pray that Christ will be magnified in us. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, you guys can have a seat. All right, so uh, tonight we're going to do a, something a little different. And so uh, David preached the sermon from this stage. And at the very beginning of his sermon, he talked about the congregational meeting that we had this past week. And um, he um, j- just uh, talked about it in a way that I really couldn't. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pray the introduction to what David is saying to the sermon um, uh, this morning on, um, on the screen. So I want you guys to listen in. And then I'm going to come up and I'm going to pray for exactly what he just shared. And then right after that, we're going to have um, our associate pastor here, Joe, uh, come up and finish out the sermon. And so if you guys could direct your eyes to the screen, um, I want you guys to check this out. Before we dive together into the word today, I need to address a dynamic that is taking place in our church family right now in a way that I don't think I've ever had to do or wanted to do in all my years as a pastor. And I wanna be careful with my words. And I'll preface all of this by saying, I know some of you today are not yet followers of Jesus. You're exploring Christianity. Others of you may be followers of Jesus, but you're not a member of this church family. Maybe you're traveling on this 4th of July weekend and you've stopped through, some of my family is here in that category. Others of you may attend MBC, but you've not taken what I would encourage is an important biblical step of becoming a member in this church or some local church. So for anyone in any of those categories, this will be a bit of a family conversation that you overhear for the first few minutes. And even with that, I would say, I've, I've prayed for you specifically in those different categories that even with this family conversation we're having and then what we talk about after, that God might draw you closer to him today. But for those who are members of this church family, we had a meeting this last Wednesday night for the purpose of affirming God's call in the lives of potential elders, pastors in our church family. I mentioned last Sunday, this is one of the most important things we do as followers of Jesus in the church to recognize and celebrate God's grace and biblically qualified leaders he raises up among us. And Wednesday night was a great night of worship and praise. Three elder nominees shared a bit of their stories to get a a glimpse of God's grace in their lives. And if you weren't here, you missed a 
blessing. It was so encouraging. Hearing from these brothers together, we got to know them more, we laughed with them, we were encouraged in our faith by them. All three of them pointed us to Jesus. Yet, when it came time to affirm them, because no one had expressed any biblical concern about them, meaning we were ready to gather around and pray for them and their wives at the end of our meeting, we were not able to because, and I want you to listen closely to the words I'm about to say, a small group of people inside and outside this church coordinated a divisive effort to use disinformation in order to persuade others to vote these men down as part of a broader effort to take control of this church. That was a lot to take in. Let me say it again. A small group of people inside and outside this church coordinated a divisive effort to persuade others to vote these men down using disinformation and using your private information. The leaders of this group have somehow gotten a membership list improperly accessed from our database and they are using it to improperly contact members of NBC, actively sharing that list with our names, addresses, phone numbers, birth dates, with other members of this group and other members of NBC in ways that can cause real harm in light of your private information. All in an effort to keep these biblically qualified men from becoming elders and to try and take control of this church, specifically from our Tyson's location where I'm standing right now. Almost, well, all of our other locations were almost unanimous in their affirmation of these elders. They were all in the range of 94 to 100% in favor of them. But here at Tyson's, there was a coordinated effort, started by a small group of people and expanding to others to deceive people into thinking that if they voted for these men, then our church would, and so here are some of the lies that people were being told as they entered the building in that lobby that night. If these elders were affirmed, people were being told we would sell this Tyson's building. So a vote to affirm these elders was a vote to sell this building. We had people share with us after the meeting that they voted no on these men because people they trusted had told them as they came into the meeting. They were walking around sharing this while we were singing in worship that if these elders were affirmed, they would lead us to sell this building. So those members voted no. And then they came to us later saying they were sorry they had voted that way, wanted their vote back once they realized the truth. And they were not just told that we would sell this building. Some were told that we would sell this building to Muslims so they could build a mosque here and we could give the proceeds to the Southern Baptist Convention. Now you might think there is no way people believe that and I wish I was making this up. But we have emails where this 
is being passed around to members in the most inflammatory way possible. It sounds crazy to even have to say this, but just to be clear, we actually want Muslims to know the love of Jesus. I was personally sharing this morning with a Muslim from Afghanistan. We have explained and have in writing from the SBC, we're not a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. And others were being told Wednesday night, if we affirm these elders, and just hear all the buzzwords and scare tactics that were used, NBC would be gone. Down a road of leaving the gospel behind, leaving the Bible behind, embracing liberal theology and cultural Marxism, like the author of the Communist Manifesto, that we would change our stance on abortion and sexuality, that we would allow critical race theory and Black Lives Matter and defunding the police to drive our agenda as a church. I could go on and on with ideas that are unquestionably untrue and in many ways completely unreasonable. The disheartening thing is, before God, we have walked through God's word on so many of these issues and had countless face-to-face meetings with different people clearly showing how these things are totally fabricated. Yet most, almost all of the questions we have heard are less about God's word and more about what this blog or that Facebook post says, as if those sources of information are anywhere close to the authority of this word. And yet, so as a result of disinformation through emails, private meetings leading up to that night, in addition to the improper access and distribution of your private information as members to try to influence more of you, all culminating in this culminated in this coordinated effort here at Tyson's on that night, here was the result. So our church constitution requires 75% of members at a meeting to affirm elders. And people came here that night who were recruited by this group to vote that night, who had moved away to other states. We heard about people driving in from Florida to Maine. People who were actively serving at other churches came back to vote. People who are no longer members of this church all showing up to vote no on these elders, creating all kinds of challenges with who gets a ballot to vote or not. And instead of forcing our staff and volunteers to sort through all that information on the spot, we gave out provisional ballots to people who may or may not have been a member. And even with all of those challenges and all of this disinformation, the final count in favor of these elders ranged anywhere between 70 to 78% of those who voted, depending on which ballots would be accepted from active members of NBC and which ones would be rejected from people who are not active members of NBC, which means that the final outcome of this elder election would be either just above or just below the required 75% line. So we shared Wednesday night that the results were too close to announce, that we needed time to look into all of this, and our current elders have met since then and decided we are not going to be in the business of adjudicating which provisional ballot count or not count, so we are going to follow the next step in our church's constitution which calls for us to submit additional nominations for elders to the church. So today, We're calling a special congregational meeting for two Sundays from now, July 18th, in coordination with our worship gatherings that morning, 
Put it on your calendar, July 18th, and our current elders voted unanimously yesterday in favor of additional nominations for the three men who were previously presented to this church as biblically qualified to serve as elders. Chuck Hollingsworth, Ken Tucker, and Jim Burris, all three amazing brothers recommended by you as a church family. And we are calling every single member of NBC to vote on these men. And every single member is the key phrase there. We are calling every single active member of this church living in this city to be a part of this vote. Less than 25% of members were part of the vote Wednesday night, which enabled a small group. So just to put it in perspective, less than 7% of our current membership on Wednesday night, including some people who we know are not actually members, less than 7% kept elders from being overwhelmingly affirmed in our church family for the first time in our history. And just to clearly communicate again, the seriousness behind this, behind all of this disinformation and deception is a small group of people who have stated that their purpose is to take control of this church and to use this elder vote toward that end. And I know, even as I'm saying this, like some of you have seen this kind of thing happen in churches before. For some of you, it's why you're leery of local churches. This is why churches have constitutions. This is why meaningful membership in the church is really important. And this is why I want to ask you as a member of this church for the sake of our church family and all we want to do together in this city and the world. I cannot emphasize enough how important this is. Adjust your schedule, your vacation plans, your whatever in order to be here that Sunday morning, July 18th. This is extremely important for our church. To come together, and and I say that, knowing that some of you have been drawn into this, maybe by people you have trusted, and you have genuinely believed falsehoods, been joined up in them. I assume the best, like with good motives, and we've already had conversations with people saying, I can't believe I got caught up in this. Or, or maybe even you have let out in division in different ways. I want you to hear from me that I, we, genuinely love and care for you. Pastors across our church would happily meet with you, answer your questions. We want to function in a way that is very different in the world around us. So far as it depends on us, we want to pursue peace with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who have been part of our church family. We want you to know there's a place for you here. In the midst of all of this, of all of this I've been praying, God, what, what good are you doing in this? As I've prayed, I believe God desires to use all of this division to actually unify our church. And here's what I mean by that. Follow me real close because it's gonna lead us right into 1 Corinthians 12. Right now, we have a golden opportunity as a church family after a really hard year in the world, an often tense and divisive year, particularly here in Metro Washington, D.C., we have an opportunity to say together as a church, what happened Wednesday night is not who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. People strategizing against one another in the lobby, 
not looking at each other in the eye, turning away from each other when somebody tries to talk with them, going around to each other while we're singing in worship to talk about voting strategy. That is not us. And it wasn't just that night. It's part of a bigger picture that it's been going on for a, a long time. We have received constant emails that we've tried to address on individual levels from members sharing things that are deeply concerning, including pages I read last night. And I'm hesitant to share examples because of how hurtful they are. Just to give you a glimpse, I saw one email from one of the main leaders in this group using race to say that NBC is no longer McLean Bible Church, that it's now Melanin Bible Church. That is not acceptable for the body of Jesus Christ. That language has no place whatsoever here. And I only shared, I hesitate to share it because I know it's so ugly and painful to even hear, but I want to point out the approach that's being used by people giving leadership to this group in these meetings. And I believe you need to know it because you don't want to be a part of this. And we need to say loud and clear, that definitively does not represent who we are as a church. We're a family of brothers and sisters from all kinds of colors and backgrounds and perspectives, and we will not, we will not apologize for our increasing diversity or our commitment to humbly address racial issues from God's word as we unite together on a glorious mission to proclaim this good word and our great God in a city where five million plus men, women, boys, and girls are on a road that leads to an eternal hell and need the good news of God's love for them. Amen. Amen. We, are, we are at a pivotal moment in our church opening back up after a global pandemic, ready to enter into a new chapter of our church, standing on the shoulders of brothers and sisters who've gone before us faithfully, ready to run after the city with the gospel, caring for orphans and widows and the poor and those in need to reach the next generation with the gospel. I was in exhilarating meetings all day Friday talking about how to reach the next generation with the gospel. I thought, God, help us to give our time and energy to this. Do we not see the trends? God, wake us up. I wanted so badly to pray over those three brothers with their wives here Wednesday night, all of whom are eminently qualified. But we had to pause in light of what happened. My hope and my prayer is that two weeks from now, we can take the pause button off and start running together on mission in this city. But that will not happen if you do not stand up as members of this church and vote and affirm God-qualified elders in our church family. Please be here July 18th, two Sundays from now. And between now and then, we will send you details, not just about the vote that Sunday, but amidst all the disinformation I, we have absolutely nothing to hide. So starting later this week, once we're past this holiday weekend, we're gonna send you communication that dispels disinformation. In the meantime, though, please feel free to reach out to any of our pastors to talk about any questions you have. I, we want you to be able to say with a clear conscience before God, I can affirm these elders to lead us to follow Jesus on mission together. Because in the end, this is not ultimately about a small group of people versus church leadership. This is about the members of McLean Bible Church deciding how we're gonna move forward together as a church family.
in a way that is different from this world. So it just so happens that today we had planned to start a new series in our church based on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 called Supernatural Church. Church that does not operate in natural ways, but in supernatural ways. Church that does not operate with the spirit of this world, but with the pure, holy spirit of God. We come to church because we wanna be a part of something different than everything else we see in this world, different than everything else we see in Washington. We wanna be a part of something so different, so supernatural, something that is so distinctly unexplainable apart from the power of the Spirit of God. So could it be that even in this, God is bringing us together to say in a fresh way, Spirit of God, do among us what only you can do. Bring unity out of disunity. Bring harmony out of discord. Melt hearts, form minds, exalt truth over lies. Bring error into light. God, do what only you can do. We need you. And you know, that's a, that's a good place for a church to be. It's good for a church to be brought to a place where we are looking to God to do what only he can do. Man, there's nothing I can add to that. That's right. But I, I did want to add this point, though. Um, as he said, we're going to have that meeting on June 18th. We're actually going to uh, attempt to have that as Arlington, in Arlington. So location is TBD. So that means in two weeks when we have service, we're going to actually have service in the morning at 11 <laughs> rather than in the afternoon. And so there'll be email communication about uh, the exact time, the exact location, and then also the time of the congregational meeting after that. So make sure if you don't know, um, sign up for the e-news so that you can uh, be aware of that. And so I'm gonna pray, then I wanna invite Joe to come up to preach the word of God to us. And so let's pray today. And Father, with everything that's going on, I'm reflecting going to Ephesians 4, where you told us to be eager to maintain the unity, unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You said in your word that it is by our love for one another that people know that you are real. And Father, I know that you, are, that you are grieved by what you see in your church and in this small remnant of people. And so ultimately right now, Father, we pray for peace. And I pray for those in our church body who may be younger in the faith and may be affected by what they are seeing. Father, I pray that they will fix their eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, that when we act imperfectly, that we ultimately can fix our eyes on a perfect God. Father, I thank you for Joe. I thank you um, for who he is, God, and you saving him and you giving him um, your word tonight to preach. And so I pray that you, will, um, that you will give him the exact words that you want him to say. And may they fall on fresh soil and may they accomplish what um, they attend to. Your word always does. And so I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Guys, will you give it up for Joe? So good to see all of you here tonight. It's, uh, it's kind of strange following up that. Um, what makes it so strange is I've never seen any kind of disunity like that in the Arlington congregation. I can only say we have uh, one of the best churches I've ever been in in my life, and I'm so thankful for all of you here tonight. So. Um, hope you don't mind. We're going to switch. We're going to try to put that up behind us, and we're going to focus on something else tonight. When I was in sixth grade, um, at elementary school, we had a gifted in 
talented program for students. And the, the kids that were in this program were able to get out of the normal English and science classes, and they got to do stuff that was more uh, on their level, which like write plays and build model rockets. Um, and those kids in that class, everybody knew that these were the kids that were going to make something of their lives later on. And I was asked to take the test to see if I was uh, qualified for the program. Uh, but the results showed that I was neither gifted nor talented. And that shouldn't come up as, as a surprise. It certainly didn't come as a surprise to my parents. But the confirmation of my lack of giftedness bothered me for many years to come. And part of the reason it bothered me was because I desperately wanted to be a part of a group where I was considered unique. And C.S. Lewis wrote an essay, and it's probably an essay all the gifted kids read, called The Inner Ring, in which he says, quote, in all men's lives at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside, end quote. Now I certainly wanted to be in that inner ring, but even more than that, I wanted to feel like I had an ability or a talent that would make me special. It wasn't until much later that I learned there was a different inner ring, the local church, that operated on a very different principle. To get into the gifted and talented program, to get into the inner ring at school, I had to prove I was gifted. But at church, it was the opposite. You get into the inner circle by giving your life to Jesus, and then you become gifted. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight as we look at 1 Corinthians 12 and Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts. But before we do, let me pray for our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to come together tonight to worship you. As we read your holy word, we ask you to open our eyes and soften our hearts so we can see the beauty and truth within your scripture. Show us how to apply the lessons tonight so we might better serve one another. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one of the manifestations of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, for another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one in the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So we're going to quickly examine tonight five questions about spiritual gifts that will help us better understand what Paul's getting at in this passage. So the first question I must consider tonight is, what exactly are spiritual gifts? Before we clarify what they are, let's start by clarifying what they are not. A key point to keep in mind is that not every gifting you have is a spiritual gift. 
Now, this is a common, common point of confusion because in the book of James, he tells us every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is spirit, and all good gifts come from God, but not all gifts are spiritual gifts. And when the Bible uses this term, it uses it in a more narrow sense, as we'll see in a moment. Our spiritual gifts are also not just natural abilities, skills, or talents. Now, God may have given you a beautiful singing voice, or he may give you a, a ability to move crowds with your speech. You may even use those gifts to benefit the church, but they're not necessarily spiritual gifts. Also, spiritual gifts aren't something we choose. The Holy Spirit doesn't hand us a menu and say, choose from this list which gift you'd like to have. Now, there may be times when the Spirit gives you a spiritual gift that complements your other natural abilities or gifts, but you also may be given a gift that you wouldn't have chosen for yourself. So what thing can we say a spiritual gift is? Unfortunately, the Bible never de defines the term directly, but we can create a definition based on the way the term is used throughout Scripture. So here's my attempt at creating a definition. A spiritual gift is a particular ability or activity given directly to every disciple of Jesus by the Holy Spirit to build up other believers within the body of Christ for the ultimate purpose of glorifying God. So that's a lot. So let me read that one more time so we're clear on what we're talking about. A spiritual gift is a particular ability or activity given directly to a disciple, every disciple of Jesus by the Holy Spirit to build up other believers within the body of Christ for the ultimate purpose of glorifying God. So let's quickly unpack what these parts of the definition are so we can gain a better understanding of what it means and how spiritual gifts are used. The first part is that gifts are a particular ability or activity with, given directly to every disciple of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So where do we get this from? Well, in verse 4 we read that there are different kinds of gifts, but the sp same Spirit distributes them. Also in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, Paul says, Each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. From this we can conclude that the Spirit gives the gifts. Every believer has at least one. And they are not all the same. So we get the idea that there are a particular ability or activity from the examples Paul provides. And we're going to talk about that more later. But for now, let's look at the second part of this definition. The gifts are given to us to build other believers within the body of Christ for the ultimate purpose of glorifying God. Now, earlier in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, Paul tells us that whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That is not only the ultimate purpose of our spiritual gifts, that is the ultimate purpose for everything we do. Which leads us with the one last part of the definition, to build up other believers within the body of Christ. In verse 7, we heard Paul say, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The apostle Peter is even more explicit on this point. In 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, Peter says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So the gifts are given to build up other people, not just for your own use. They're not private. You have gifts someone else needs, and they have gifts that you need. And that is one of the reasons we need to gather frequently as a body of believers. It's not just that we need people and need this as a community, which we certainly do, but we need the specific gifts that are given in this church. 
We need the specific gifts that God gives the people individually in here. And likewise, we need to show up in person to give those gifts to other people. We need to give them the gifts they need from us. Now, there's a story that's told in many cultures called the, the parable of the long spoons, in which a person is given a vision of two different, very different rooms full of people. In the center of the first room, there's a large pot of stew that can only be reached by using these very long spoons. The spoons are so long, though, that when people try to bring the food back to their mouth, it spills out. The result is all the people in this room are thin and starving. In the second room, there's also a very large pot of stew that can only be reached by very long spoons. But in this room, all the people are healthy and they're well-fed. What's different in this room is that instead of people trying to feed each other, they reach out and feed one another so that everyone is fed. That's how our spiritual gifts are like. If we use them to try to serve ourselves, they don't help anyone. But when we use them to serve others and others use their gifts to serve us, we all benefit together. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to talk about how we can know what these gifts are, what gifts, specific gifts we have. But before we say what spiritual gifts you have, we need to clarify whether there are certain spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit no longer gives. So that leads us to our second question. Has the Holy Spirit ceased giving certain spiritual gifts? Are there spiritual gifts, Paul lists in this passage, that the Holy Spirit doesn't give us today? Now that's an issue of considerable debate among Orthodox Christians. Uh, there's some dis disagreement about whether certain gifts, which we will call confirming gifts or charismatic gifts, are still being given by the Holy Spirit. And the confirming gifts include such gifts as speaking in tongues and healing and prophecy and apostleship and interpretation of tongues. Now, all believers should agree that these gifts were once given out because they say so clearly in the Bible. But the question is whether the Holy Spirit still gives those gifts today. Now, there are two broad camps within evangelicalism on this issue. And the first people are called continuationists. They believe that the charismatic gifts have continued through today up to the present day. Now, not all continuationists actually practice the gifts. So the people who practice the gifts and believe they continue will refer to them as charismatic believers, just for a little sake of clarity. The second group are what's called cessationists, who believe the charismatic gifts ceased or ended in the age of the apostles. Or at least they became extremely rare since that time. Now, the position of NBC and the position I personally hold myself is the cessationist view, or what some people might call the soft cessationist view. Now, on our, on our website, under the About Us page, you can read what we believe on spiritual gifts. But to save time, I'll just kind of summarize what NBC's position is by saying the charismatic gifts were given for a specific reason at the early, at the age of the early church for a very specific reason. And since that reason has largely been fulfilled, we should not expect to see these gifts being given to us for normative church practices. However, God is limited only by his character. And if he wants to give those gifts in extraordinary times and places, he can do so. But we don't believe that changes the fact that these confirming gifts are not normally given to us in this post-apostolic age. So I'm going to try to quickly defend this position, but before I do, let me make it very clear that if you are a continuationist, you are welcome in this church. For, this reason, for the reason I'll explain in a moment, 
we're not going to open our worship services to charismatic practices. But just because you believe the spirit's charismatic gifts are still operational today does not mean you do not have a belong at NBC. All right, so let's get to the fence. There are two reasons why I hold and why NBC holds this soft cessationist view. And I'm, I'm going to try to briefly argue for both. And the first is that what my continuationist friends claim are the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, apostleship, etc. The gifts that they see today do not match what tongues, prophecy, and healing are in the Bible. And the second reason is that there is a distinct lack of evidence that these gifts are being given to believers today. And what I mean by that is that most Christians since the age of the apostles have not experienced anything like what we see those particular gifts were given for the church today. So let me start by talking about the evidence. The Bible trumps evidence, trumps experience. But I think it's useful to start by observing what we see because what we see in the church today informs how we read scripture. So I'll start by talking about my own experience because I came to the position I hold because I grew up in charismatic churches. When I was 11 years old, my mother and her stepfather divorced. And prior to their splitting up, we always went to the Baptist churches, which my stepfather preferred. But after the divorce, we started going to, my mother started taking me and my little brother to a Pentecostal church. Uh, becoming Pentecostal was like joining a different culture. And the church was one of those old school Pentecostal churches where uh, the women can't wear pants and they, have, they can't wear makeup. They, can't keep, they have to keep their hair long and the men can't have hair above their collar. Uh, and they also weren't allowed to have a TV in the house, which was the behavior I found most inexplicable. I couldn't imagine how you could go without watching the Jeffersons and Buck Rogers and Chips and Eight is Enough. But next to the no TV rule, the part I had the most difficult time accepting was the actual church service itself. We had started service at one o'clock, and if we were lucky, we got out of there at six, six o'clock. And the first part of the service was pretty much like we have here. We'd have uh, about three songs, and then we'd have a 30-minute sermon. But after the sermon, it was when, as the pastor of the church used to say, the Holy Spirit would show up. And that's when people would start uh, what they'd consider speaking in tongues, and then someone would get slain in the Spirit, which means they were just laid down on the ground, they couldn't move. We had some people dancing around and running around the, the, and some people would actually roll along on the floor, which is where the term holy roll originated from, from the Pentecostal churches, that kind of behavior. And we went to that church for about a year before my mom decided that five hours of Sunday was even too much for her. And so we left and began attending other charismatic churches that were less strict about the TV stuff and where women could wear makeup and pants. And it wasn't my preference, but at the time, and this was in the early 80s, Kids went to church where their parents did. So mom was going to the charismatic church. I was going to charismatic church. And I tell you all this to point out that I have a lot of experience with charismatic believers. I respect and love them dearly. Some of the best times of my childhood in my teen years were spent at charismatic church camps. I don't find charismatic believers weird, and I don't find them embarrassing, and I hope you don't either. I don't even think what they're doing is necessarily wrong, I just think it's wrong to call what they're doing spiritual gifts. So I was originally going to explain all the differences uh, that we have on several gifts, including tongues, prophecy, and healing. In the hundreds of hours I spent in charismatic churches, I never witnessed even one example of what I would say was evidence of 
gifts, our tongues, prophecy, or healing that we see in the Bible. But to save time, I'm just going to show where we talk about where we disagree on one area, speaking in tongues. So throughout the book of Luke, excuse me, throughout the book of Acts, the author of the book, Luke, whenever he talks about tongues, he's referring to actual human languages. And for example, in the description of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Luke lists out 15 different groups that say they heard the disciples of Galilee declaring the wonders of God in their own native language or dialect. And they heard this message in their own language because this was a sign of God's judgment on the nations. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that this is what was mentioned in Isaiah 28, 11 through 12, where it says, for by people of strange lips and with the foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. Now speaking in tongues is a sign of judgment. The message of the gospel was being proclaimed to the nations in a way that they could understand. It was being proclaimed in their own languages and they weren't listening. This is why Paul says in the same chapter that tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Now, if I walked into a church and I heard somebody who I knew didn't know any foreign languages, started proclaiming the glories of God in Farsi or Korean, I'd immediately believe that they had the gift of tongues. But that's not what I've ever seen. And I honestly don't know anyone who can claim that they've actually seen that kind of thing in churches. And what you will find in charismatic churches is believers engage in what's often referred to as glossolalia, or what I would call free vocalization. So free vocalization is the human act of producing a stream of vocal sounds that doesn't sound anything at all like the, natives, uh, the, the speaker's native language, and that doesn't have the same linguistic features we'd expect to find in human languages. And if you listen closely, it's usually a string of syllables that are strung together and repeated. So you'll see the same things coming up over and over there. And this type of free vocalization is what most, most charismatic churches call speaking in tongues. They aren't talking about actual known human languages. And this is controversial. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to represent their view as they would, as they would say it, as they would admit to it. Now, sometimes they will even say that this speaking in tongues, this type of uh, free vocalization is a private prayer language. But if it's a private prayer language, then it can't be tongues or any other spiritual gift, because all spiritual gifts are for the benefit of others, not for private use. So we're going to talk about more that more in a moment. Now, charismatic believers also refer to these utterances as a private language because there is rarely, if ever, anyone to provide an interpretation. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. This is likely the most ignored biblical command in charismatic churches. I've witnessed, literally witnessed several hundred people in churches speaking in what they consider tongues, and yet never once have I ever seen anybody interpret. So to summarize the disagreement, the Bible refers to tongues as human languages, but charismatic believers say it can also include free vocalization. And we see the same sort of shift in definition on the issues of prophecy or healing or apostleship. Well, we say, here's the biblical definition. They say, well, the biblical definition, we can add to it. Ultimately, the disagreement is whether what we see today matches what we saw in the Bible. So that's a long explanation just to say, while you have been given spiritual gifts, they probably don't include such gifts as prophecy, speaking in tongues, 
or interpretation of tongues. So that leads to our next question. If the gifts don't include the charismatic gifts, what gifts can you expect that the Spirit will give you for the edification of the church? Well, in the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, Paul names 17 examples of spiritual gifts. Now, if we exclude the confirming sign gifts, we are left with administration, discernment, evangelism, exhortation, faith, giving, helping, leading, mercy, service, and teaching. Now, we can say these are examples because there's nothing in Paul's letters that makes us think that he meant this list to be exhaustive. Now, we don't need to limit ourselves to just these, but because they are the ones highlighted in God's word, this is where we should start. Now, Paul also tells us in verse 31 to earnestly seek, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I think when he's talking about the higher gifts, he's talking about these on this list. I'd say if you were a Christian and you've been serving in a local church like this, you have used your spiritual gift already. You probably have used one of these gifts even if you don't know what it is. The fact is you don't have to know what your spiritual gift is to use it. You don't have to know what it is called for the Holy Spirit to use this gift to benefit others. And we also know that Paul, in his own life, he had a variety of these gifts. So while we are guaranteed at least one gift, we may have many. You may have spirit, several spiritual gifts God's gonna use to edify this church. Which leads to our next question. How do we discover our gifts? And we tend to think of spiritual gifts as some kind of abstract ability that we possess, but that's not the way the gifts work. God has given you both a gift and a context, and they are inseparable. Gifts and context come as a package deal. And that is why these spiritual gift inventories and these questionnaires, they aren't all that helpful, and they certainly should be taken that seriously. Imagine I take a spiritual gift test and it tells me I have the gift of teaching. Does that mean that God has called me to teach in any church? When I was in the Marines, I was stationed three times in Japan. Imagine if I showed up in a local church in Japan and said, I have the gift of teaching, and I'd like to share it with your congregation. And they'd probably look at each other and say, why is this brother speaking English in a Japanese language church? Since I don't speak Japanese, it'd be difficult for me to communicate effectively in that church much less be able to tell them about God's word when I don't speak their language. Now, I'm certain if God called me to that church, he would give me a gift, such as serving or, or mercy, that I could use there, but it probably wouldn't be a gift that required communication skills. And this is why we can't necessarily assume we will always have the same gift in every context. The gift God has given you may be the same for your entire life, or it may give you different gifts based on the churches and places he calls you to be. In one church, he might call me to preach. In another church, he might call me just to serve in the nursery. Whatever he calls me to will depend on what is needed within that church. Context matters, which is why the first step to understanding your gifts is to be part of a larger body of, of Christ by being part of a local church. And if God has called you to be part of NBC, he has given you gifts that are needed by the people of NBC. And since the local church context matters so much, I'll give you just a couple of examples from my own congregation that can kind of help you better see how to go about the process of discovering your gifts. 
So one way is to look for opportunities within the church. Now, last fall, after five and a half years of serving on the Connect team, Tahisha Marquez said that she felt it was time for her to step down and let somebody else lead. And Meredith Murray saw there was a role that needed to be filled, and so she stepped up and took the job. And I don't know if she knew it then, but God had given her the gifts of administration, leadership, and hospitality. And she might have recognized that from the start, but I suspect what she saw was a need within the church, and it was only later that she realized that God had given her the gifts to do the job. Another way is to consider how your background or abilities can be used for the church. Nicole DeMoss leads our children's ministry, while her husband, Austin, serves on the security team. Now, Austin's background makes him a good fit for security, just as Nicole's job as a school teacher makes her ideal to serve our little ones. Now, God can expand their natural abilities and experiences in a way that will serve his supernatural purposes. A third method is to simply look around for the needs. Now, Chris Thomas is a discipleship leader and a group leader because he's exhibited the gifts of teaching and leadership. But I suspect if you ask most people that know him what gift stands out, they would say it's the gift of service. Chris recently bought a pickup truck, and within a week he had three people ask him to help him move. Now I know some of us don't buy a truck for that very reason, but Chris knew that by getting a truck instead of a car, it would give him more opportunities to serve others within our church. And the last method I'm gonna mention is simply to ask other people to help you identify your gifts. As Pastor Eric frequently says, your gifts will be confirmed by the other people in this church. For example, maybe you have an increasing interest in learning God's word and sharing it with others. How do you know if you have the gift of teaching? The best approach is to simply start small. Try to explain a doctrine to someone in your small group or try to explain what a confusing passage means to someone you're discipling, a new believer. If you do that several times and people start telling you how helpful you are and how they've, you're kind of opening their eyes to God's word, then you might have the gift of teaching. You don't need to wait until you're in front of 30 or 70 or 100 people. You can start small on a smaller scale before you open your, try to use your gift for the whole body of believers. So finally, the last question I want us to consider tonight, what if I'm not satisfied with my spiritual gift or the degree of gifting I've received? So it can be kind of awkward just saying out loud in front of other people that you think you have a particular gift. It may seem rather arrogant, for example, to say, I have the gift of discernment, because people start thinking, well, are you saying you're infallible, that you're, uh, you can't be questioned, that whatever you say, um, God is speaking through you? Or if you say, I have the gift of teaching, some people may think you're claiming that you're a better teacher than other members of the body of Christ. But talking about your spiritual gift doesn't imply that you're saying you're infallible or that you're special, because our gifts aren't about us. They're giving to us for other believers. While it feels weird to say out loud, I think I've been given the spiritual gift of teaching and preaching. If I didn't, I wouldn't have this job and I wouldn't be in this pulpit. But it should also be obvious that I don't think my preaching ability compares to other pastors, including the pastors in my own church. I'm not as gifted or as talented a preacher as Eric Saunders or Mike Kelsey or David Platt. And I'm okay with that because it is not about me. Now, of course, I have some responsibility for working to improve the spiritual gifts God's given me. All of us should expect that we're going to have to work 
to make the most of the spiritual gifts. And for me, this means putting in a lot of effort in teaching. For every minute I spend teaching in public, I'm going to spend an hour in private studying and preparing. But the effect of my efforts will be limited by the gifting God has given me. Now, there's no amount of work I could do on my own that would match the gifts God has given to my fellow pastors. And unless God gives me some kind of extra gifting, I'm not going to match the gifts of Eric or Mike or David. And again, I'm fine with that because I get to use the, God, the gifts that God has given me for the body of Christ. So whatever gifts you have been given and whatever amount that you've been given, we should be grateful. Now, we could certainly de- desire, as Paul says in verse 31, desire to be given gifts or levels of gifting that can be of more use to the church. But God didn't make a mistake giving you the gifts he did. He gave them to you because they are needed in the church. That should shape how we respond to our gifts. And to understand why, consider this thought experiment. Imagine your favorite movie director comes to you and says he wants you to appear in one scene in his next film. Or imagine your favorite singer says, I want you to sing a verse, just one verse, on my next song. Or imagine the President of the United States comes to you and says, I want you to just include one line in my next State of the Union address. Imagine not only that, they come to you and say, your contribution is not only essential, but I'm going to give you whatever resource you need to make sure you can add some value. So how would you respond to that? Would you say to them, that's all I get? One line, one scene, one verse? Of course you wouldn't. You'd be thrilled the fact that you could contribute at all. Now imagine the God of the universe has said he wants you to contribute to the greatest project and most important project in human history, building his church. He says your contribution is not only essential, but he will give you the skills and talents and giftings you need to add some value. You don't have to imagine that because it's already happened. The Lord of creation is saying that to you today in the passage we hear from Paul. Jesus didn't just go to the cross so you could be reconciled with God and then wait around for heaven. Jesus died for you to make it possible for you to join him in doing the work of his kingdom right now. Jesus died so he could send this Holy Spirit to you to give you the gift, the gift that you have right now to serve the rest of the body of Christ. The Father gave his greatest gift, the Son, in part so that the Holy Spirit could bless you with your spiritual gift. So whenever you're tempted to downplay your gifts or despise your gifts or simply neglect your gifts, think about what it cost God to give those to you. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the spiritual gifts you've given us. Thank you for allowing us to serve one another by giving back the gifts you've given us. There are no words that we could express, Lord, for the gift of your son. There are no words that we could ever express our gratitude for the price Jesus paid to save us from our sin and the just punishment of eternal damnation. Helps to never take your love for granted. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen.